0: Hello, everyone. I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. In
1: these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences history, business, literature, and politics, to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back. Huh? Thank you, Richard. Today we're continuing our series based on Plutarch's lives of the noble Grecians and Romans. And today's subjects are the Greek uh, Eumenes and the Roman Quintus Sertorius. With Eumenes, we're dealing with the time period immediately following the death of Alexander the Great and the uh, dissolution and division of the largest empire the world had ever known. But with Sertorius, we're dealing with the period of the Roman Civil War of 83 to 81 BC and the ensuing Solon dictatorship. Uh, as we've noted before, Plutarch is writing during the Julio-Claudian Empire, but the destruction of the Republic is still politically fraught, and the emperors generally sought to continue adhering to the forms of the Republican period. Tom, I had not even heard the name Eumenes before researching for this podcast, but the time period he lived in was certainly eventful. What can you tell us about it?
0: So, Richard, uh, this one I'm going to go into uh, some fairly deep details and I want to use that as a way to perhaps illustrate um, not really the insanity of this time frame, but the the chaos and disorder after the death of Alexander uh, amongst the generals of the Macedonian army. So Eumenes, or Eumenes rather, he was a native of Cardia, uh, but he was Thracian. He was not Greece, Greek. And that turns out to have made a, a, a fairly big Impact on his life. He was even uh, suspected of being Scythian. Uh, So, so, but at an early age, he was employed by a private as a private secretary by Philip II. And after Philip's death, he accompanied uh, Alexander the Great into Asia. He took uh, command of a large body of Greek and Macedonian fighters. Uh, during these campaigns, after Alexander's death and the ensuing division of the empire, uh, he was given uh, satrapy of Cappadocia. And uh, even though these territories were not uh, or had come up uh, not subdued or had come back under revolt, he had a a big win mil- military success at <clears throat> uh, the Hellespont, where he defeated uh, two Greeks in the Lamian War, who uh, had raised an army in Greece and tried to pass over the Hellespont into Asia. Uh, He was there because they were aiming, uh, their first blow was going to be aimed at Cappadocia, but he defeated them, and that, uh, I think, raised his stead in the eyes of certain, uh, or or rather a large part of the Macedonian generalship. There was a murder in Egypt of, one of the generals, Perdiccas, and the generals uh, who uh, apparently Eumenes, Eumenes supported and the Macedonian generals in Egypt then condemned condemned him to death. Uh, this really started him on a road that does end in his death, although it took multiple years uh, for that death to occur. He was basically on the lamb during this time. And he had to go from town to town or satrap to satrap or province to province to raise an army. Interestingly, he still held his military title, even though he had been condemned to death. And he seemed to have superior uh, military skills, uh, both on cavalry and uh, infantry. So uh, on the military side of things, he seems to have – been I mean, quite good. The um, he sold off uh, estates uh, to pay for soldiers. He uh, raised monies from uh, satraps that were uh, uh, titularly under his tutelage. If I can use those two words in an alliteration, uh, but after a subsequent conference, a bounty was put on his head of one hundred talents of gold. Now, I can't begin to uh, convert that into today, but I will tell you that a talent of one talent of gold in the ancient world was a small fortune, and a hundred talents is a very big fortune. So uh, they wanted him out of the way. Nevertheless, when news of this uh, reward for his murder, or this bounty, I should say, and it was dead or alive, uh, came to his knowledge— His officers and men were so outraged uh, that they swore to protect his life, and he was assigned a bodyguard of 1,000 men. Interestingly, he was granted the privilege of wearing the purple, which in the ancient world uh, was the royal color, and it was an honor usually only granted to a Macedonian king. So he was certainly well thought of. He uh, fought a, a character named Antigonus, uh, in several pitched battles that were usually fought to a draw, uh, but Eumenes, uh, much like uh, the South in the Civil War, uh, only had a finite number of men and a finite number of money, so he really couldn't sustain uh, these losses um, in a war of attrition. Uh, they ended up having a kind of a war of maneuver, and uh, but Antigonus did have have more men, and he did have greater funds, and it was really only a matter of time before uh, he was able to bring Eumenes to bear. They parlayed and tried to negotiate uh, a some sort of uh, uh, surrender where Eumenes would be able to keep his life, and Antigonus uh, basically said <clears throat> that you must address me uh as I am your superior officer, to which Eumenes replied, while I'm able to wield a sword, I shall thank no man greater than myself. And unfortunately that sort of sealed his fate because now Antigonus, who had really come to see, seems like he had come to respect him, uh, realized that he couldn't be brought back into the fold. They fought a series of, of battles um, going forward and the uh, Antigonus and his allies were able to uh, take control of a group called the Silver Shields, uh, which seems to be some sort of Praetorian Guard or other highly trained, specialized group. And more importantly, they took the Silver Shields' booty, their wives and children, and the this uh, with this. Antigonus and his commanders were able to persuade the silver shields to hand over Eumenes, um, and this put the war at an end, but, uh, Antigonus still had to ponder the fate of his rival. And although he was disinclined to kill Eumenes, the council insisted that he be executed. Uh, he was (laughs) executed in in a fairly, I don't want to say gruesome manner, but certainly, uh, not a pleasant manner he was starved for several days and then uh, he was executed although his body was allowed to be burnt in honor and his ashes were conveyed to his wife and children so there was there was clearly some still some respect here and I guess when I sort of got out of this Richard was was really the chaos of this time because I uh, in my notes I had a lot more detail to- and I realized that it was too far into the weeds to really go through it all, but lots of battles, lots of shifting alliances, uh, and uh, lots of maneuvering both political and military by humanities.
1: Well, it is an interesting period, and the um, I guess you know part of what makes it so interesting is that these men had all been comrades in arms uh, under Alexander and had frequently fought. Uh, in battles and, and had very high regard for each other's abilities. Um, but then when it came time to uh, to partition everything up, it sort of became every man for himself. There's still that residue of respect that you saw in his uh, treatment after his death. Quintus Sertorius, uh, on the other hand, was born in 126 BC, down of Nursia in the Sabine territory to the family in the equestrian order. And after a brief and undistinguished career as a jurist and orator, he joined the military, first under Quintus Cirilli's Capo and then under Gaius Marius. And with Marius, he served with distinction in the campaigns, defeating the Teutones, the Ambrones, and the Chimbri. But um, due to the political situation in Rome, he and Marius... Uh, had to get out of town for a while, and so he went to Spain and served as military tribune there, successfully putting down a revolt. In 91, he went back to Rome, was elected Questor, and sent to Cisalpine Gaul, where he was recruiting and training soldiers for the Social War, which was a war that developed when the Italian allies rebelled after being denied Roman citizenship for the umpteenth time. Uh, During this war, he lost an eye, which he was subsequently able to use as propaganda for his uh, personal bravery. He ran for t- tribune, but was thwarted by Sulla, probably because of his ties to Marius. And in 88 BC, Sulla marched on Rome, captured the city, proscribed some of his enemies, and forced uh, Gaius Marius into exile. When Sulla had to leave to go fight King Mithridates VI of Pontus, violence erupted between the, uh, the two groups, the Optimates, led by uh, consul Gnaeus Octavius and the... Populares, led by the consul Lucius Cornelius Sina. Sertorius, being a former subordinate of Marius, declared for Sina and the Populares. And um, Sina was driven from Rome, and he and Sertorius recruited ex-legionnaires and drummed up their support to enable them to, in turn, march on Rome. In October of 87 BC, uh, Sina did march on Rome, and Sertorius commanded one of his divisions, uh, and then uh, Rome was surrendered to the forces of Marius, Sinna, and Sertorius. Sertorius abstained from uh, prescribing his, uh, his fellow citizens, which the other commanders engaged in, following Sulla's uh, example. And, but Sertorius went so far as to rebuke Marius and move Senna to moderation. After Marius's death, uh, a slave army of Marius's that had been terrorizing Rome was annihilated by Sertorius. When Sulla returned from the east in 83 BC, a civil war broke out, and Sertorius was on the wrong, was on the losing side. Cinna was murdered by his own men, and um, and eventually Sertorius realized things were going from bad to worse, and so he went to Spain. When he went through the Pyrenees mountain range, he ran into a mountain tribe which demanded tribute for allowing his passage and Plutarch how his, his companions, indignantly claimed it was an outrage. But while they considered it disgraceful to give in to discourse, Sertorius simply paid the bribe and commented that he was buying himself time and that when a man had a lot to do, nothing is more important than time. Uh, he persuaded the local chieftains to accept him as the new governor and endeared himself with the general population by cutting taxes. Um, for a while, he held control of the province of Spain, but uh, one of his subordinates was defeated after he was assassinated by one, uh, someone who defected to the sullen uh, side. Unable to convince the Spanish tribes to fight for him after that defeat, he decided to abandon the province and fled to Mauritania, right? but he was driven off by the locals. who wanted no part of the rebellion, fell in with a band of pirates, and after a while ended up in North Africa where he was able to uh, defeat Um, a king named Aeschylus who was a puppet of Sulla's and that won him the fame and admiration of the people in Spain again, particularly the warlike Lusitanians in the west whom the Roman generals and proconsuls of Sulla's party had been plundering and oppressing. And so with the Solemn governor threatening them again, they asked Sertorius to come be their war leader and he decided to accept and return to Spain uh, at night. Um, He's reinforced by the Lusitanians, and marched on uh, the local Roman governor, Fufidius, and defeated him and started to consolidate his power in Spain. Uh, Brave, noble, and gifted with eloquence, Sertorius was just the man to impress the native warriors whom he organized into an army. They spoke of him as the new Hannibal. He resembled physically and having only one eye and in military skill. He was an extraordinary general who repeatedly defeated forces, many times his own. Forces size. A lot of Roman and Italian refugees and deserters from the Civil War joined him. Uh, and with these, he completely defeated several of Sulla's generals and drove the proconsul uh, out of his own province. He owed some of his success to his uh, prodigious ability as a statesman. His goal was to build a stable government in Hispania with the consent and cooperation of the people. I mean, he tried to civilize along the lines of the Roman model and basically create a parallel republic. Um, he did take the children of some chief native families and provide them with a school at Asca, uh, the current town of Wesca, where they received a Roman education and adopted the dress and education of Roman youths. Uh, but this, late in his campaigns, revolted of the naval people arose and Sertorius uh, used the children as hostage, killing several of them and selling others into slavery. He also had a white fawn that he had been given, which he used as a propaganda tool. Um, he announced the doe had been sent to him by the goddess Diana, and he solemnly claimed that through the doe, Diana revealed hidden information to him. Uh, he used a lot of tricks to further that. When he would uh, get information, he would uh, act as if the doe had told him that. And If there was a victory, he would hide the messenger and bring out the white fawn wearing celebratory garlands. So a lot of the more uh, superstitious Spaniards and Lusitanians believed he had divine favor. In 76 BC, the Roman Senate got kind of fed up and so they gave an extraordinary command to Gnaeus Pompey Magnus, uh, better known as Pompey the Great, to help out uh, the consul Metellus who was doing miserably against Sertorius. Rec- Pompey rec- recruited a large army from among his fathers and Sulla's veterans and marched to Spain where he met Sertorius at the Battle of Laura on Eastern Spain, but uh, Sertorius defeated him soundly. Things started to go south for Sertorius shortly after that, though, when Pompey and Metellus started scoring victories against his subordinates. Um, He then lost a couple of battles. And at that point he had to resort to guerrilla warfare. Uh, So the war was still far from over as he enjoyed the support of the inland tribes and the warriors still flocked to his cause, But it was a war of attrition and continued reinforcements from Rome for Pompey and Metellus uh, were grinding him down. He was losing the war. his authority over his men was declining, and he descended into alcoholism and debauchery. Metellus uh, decided the key to victory was getting rid of Sertorius and announced that should any Roman kill him, he would be given 100 talents of silver and 20,000 acres of land. And if he was an exile, he would be free to return to Rome. Uh, that turned Sertorius paranoid. He started distrusting his Roman retinue or bodyguards, um, and then he was murdered finally by his own men at a feast in 73 B.C., and the revolt fell apart. It doesn't seem the reward was ever paid. Uh, many commentators describe his life as a, as a tragedy, and one historian concluded Sertorius's talents were wasted, his life lost in an inglorious struggle he did not want, could not win, and could not escape. I think that's unfair um, in that I'm not sure it was an inglorious struggle. He probably couldn't win and couldn't escape. But I think it's certainly arguable Sulla had really killed the Republic and the, for his uh, habit for prescription uh, foretold a lot of the terror to come in the era leading up to uh, Augustus. And so I guess to the extent that Sutorius was fighting against that, he was on the right side.
0: We'll be right back after a message from our sponsor.
1: What do you think about the comparison of these two men? They they both seem to have been uh, very good generals uh, strategically and tactically. Um, but, I mean, are, are they ultimately tragic figures?
0: Well, that's a great point, Richard, and that's something that certainly Plutarch focused on, particularly in the comparison of the two. They were on the losing side. I think we could probably agree with that. Um, on Umanese, it was it was really not clear to me – if he it was his arrogance, his tragic, as the Greeks would say, his tragic flaw, which brought his downfall, or he really believed that he was equal, and as you said, uh, he was one of the generals who um, <clears throat> had had fought with Alexander all the way to India and back, and that uh, that he had, had attained a certain rank, and and that was where he belonged, uh, and. T- Antigonus, I think, made clear, or was made clear, that he really did not want to execute Eumenes, and if Umanes had simply acknowledged Antigonus as uh, his superior, he probably would not have been executed. But he he did not do so, and, and Plutarch uh, had a couple of quotes, and one of which I read about why uh, uh, this was such a, so problematic for Umanes. The um, um, Umenes was uh, uh, the tragedy seemed uh, in Plutarch's mind because he trusted his friends. Uh, he trusted the silver shields until their well, their wives and children were kidnapped, and then he trusted uh, Antigonus uh, not to execute him. And as as I tried to make clear, it did not appear that that was a desire of Antigonus. Nevertheless, he acceded to the wishes of the military council. And so in, in, uh, in that way, it was obvious that Uminus uh, was, was doomed. I had a little more difficult time with uh, Satorius. One, I, I did feel like this was uh, a, a lot of talent wasted. And maybe that's the nature of the Civil War. Um, you're going to waste half, half the talent, uh, particularly the losing talent. So uh, men who fight on the losing side for whatever reason, Uh, moral, military, power, money, whatever it may be, and they lose, they're going to come out on the short end of the stick. Nevertheless, I found um, he had some really interesting traits and characteristics that he used. You mentioned his blinding and losing an eye. You mentioned the white fawn and how he really used both of those. uh, I don't want to say proto-social media. Uh, amplification, but he did use them uh, to great propaganda value, particularly in uh, I, what was then called Iberia, we call Spain now, uh, with um, less less educated people who were much more prone to uh, believing in the spirits. So um, I found a lot of manipulation in that that I didn't really see. In uh, any of the other characters we've we've talked about, and certainly not in Umanes. Um, <clears throat> Satorius, um, the the tragedy was I think that you articulated it pretty well, Richard. He was on the losing side. He knew he was on the losing side. It was only a matter of time before he lost, and he was going to lose his life from it. So whether that's tragedy, whether that's honor, uh, I'm not quite sure, but uh, I think he knew. Uh, the end was nigh long before uh, the end occurred. It um, both of these uh, characters and, and Plutarch t- report of them in the lives. I thought Richard did a great job of just demonstrating the chaos of this period. Um, you know, when we think about the split up of Alexandrian Empire to the generals, we or at least I generally think, well, you know, every general got a territory and. And they may have gone to war with each other, but it was a, it was a very macro picture. Well, it, this Humani's <coughs> uh, recitation made clear to me that was not the case, that it was much, much more chaotic than just uh, a large group of uh, Ptolemaic uh, fighters uh, raging across uh, either the Hellespont or the Levant against another major power. And also, we, uh, we've touched upon the chaos of... Rome, certainly um, uh, we, we talked about it at length with the Gracchi brothers, but here we're further down into uh, a series of, of chaotic events uh, going back and forth, uh, ultimately leading to the end of the Republic. But with Sulla, uh, I think if, if he didn't uh, ring the death knell, it was, it was shortly to follow.
1: Well, and you know, I think that Sertorius was never offered an out, and I think um, a lot of Sulla's prescriptions, where you'd have people murdered, I think were financially based. And Sertorius was not a wealthy man, so um, so he, he should not, he would not have been killed for that reason. But I think he was just regarded as too dangerous, and he had been too deeply enmeshed with both uh, Marius and uh, Senna. And um, so he was. He was never given the chance. humanes was of uh, switching sides back. Um, so yeah, I think his his end was uh, was definitely inevitable.
0: Uh, one thing I got from Eubenes was he must have been a fabulous orator uh, because it talked about it. Really went into detail uh, the various satraps and uh, other. Uh, tribal units or uh, geographic units or groups of men, the Silver Shields. He was able to persuade, literally, to, f- to follow him into battle, uh, even though there was, uh, even at that point, a price on his head. He still held a generalship; ship. He still held a title, and he was able to persuade uh, uh, quite a lot of men uh, to come to his side. But another thing that, that Plutarch hinted at was there may have been a fair amount of racism going on here, um, uh, against Eumenides, because he was not viewed as a Greek. Uh, mainland Greeks did not view Thracians as Greeks, number one, and certainly uh, Scythians were not viewed as Greeks. So that was one point I wanted to to highlight. The second point was it seemed he was denigrated for being uh, a secretary, and that uh, first, as a personal secretary to, Philip II, and then the same position with Alexander, uh, he clearly had a fighting spirit and a fighting ability, but uh, some of the language uh, in Plutarch really indicated to me that um, he, he was thought less of because of that.
1: Hmm. that that's an interesting point. I mean, we, we forget about that, that uh, certainly the Greeks and the Romans um, were both ultimately very tribal peoples. Um the whole social war was over the issue of uh, citizenship for the Latin allies, some of whom had been allied with Rome for three, 400 years, uh, but they were never given citizenship and the Romans felt free to abuse them um, physically, often physically, um, which they eventually thought was intolerable. And the civil, the social war ended with them um, uh, being granted uh, Roman citizenship almost in their entirety. I guess the other thing is that, you know, Sertorius was really uh, sort of a, just a peripheral figure in a lot of this. The, um, he was he's causing trouble in Spain, but he was never really – well, first, he was a failure as an orator in his early career. And maybe that's why he depended so much on the tricks of you know, the, the fawn and the display of his, his single eye, because he was not human. Uh, peer as an orator. I hope you all have enjoyed this uh, discussion of some uh, some figures that I knew nothing about prior to this podcast um, and times that I knew very little about as well. For now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High signing off.
0: This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. I hope you will join us again next week where we take up the Greek Pericles and the Roman Fabius Maximus in episode three of our series on Plutarch's Lives. This series on Plutarch's Lives on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network.